Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Indy Johar. Indy is the co-founder of Project Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs. I'm also really happy to have Indy on the show again with me because he's my first recording of 2021. So we're in a brand new year and I'm starting off with one of the brightest minds and thinkers that I know. So welcome to the show, Indy. Hi, I'm delighted to be here, Phil. An honor to be here and honor to be thinking together uh, and in such great company. Thank you so much. You know, I want to start off, obviously, like I said at the, in the intro, we're at the first full week of 2021. And we are in a state where, you know, where you are in the UK has gone back into a, a lockdown due to COVID-19. Here in the United States, we have hopefully, fingers crossed, I never believe it until I really, really see it, two Democratic senators in Georgia. Tremendous sea change on a lot of different reasons. We're you just completed an official Brexit on the UK side of things. You know, there's turmoil, political turmoil here in the United States still with what's going on in Pennsylvania with their state Senate. So there's a lot happening to frame this conversation. But I want to use all of that going on in the background to talk about really accountability on one side, and then also this idea of complexity and democracy, which was a topic of an essay that you wrote toward the end of the year, and how compatible are these notions? So these are going to be kind of the running threads through our conversation, but I think it's a great place to just kind of start with you giving an overview on how are you feeling, and then also kind of maybe in broad strokes, what are you thinking about to start this year? Yeah. One of the reasons when we talked and I said I'd be delighted to kind of contribute and be part of this conversation is I think this is a, this feels different from the last six months. And I think what I'm worried about more now is almost a structural loss of hope. And actually, the idea of the future becomes a place of worry and pain and struggle. And actually, that loss of the idea of the future is where my worry is right now. Speaking to people, friends and colleagues, and people that are looking at the stats, certainly with the lockdown in the UK, lockdown three feels significantly different to lockdowns one and two. The psychological impacts, I think, you know, whether it's in everyday behaviors of everyday issues of depression, everyday issues of, I mean, like challenges in people's lives, the micro violences that we're all experiencing, the loss of tolerance that people have with each other because of the everyday pressures that people are feeling, all the way through to suicide rates going up. I think there's something much deeper now in play. And if we put this into frame, that COVID for me is just a, a symptom of a failure. You know, climate change effects are going to be significantly larger, and the biodiversity impacts of that are going to be even more larger. We're living in an age of long emergencies, and we've already depleted our mental wealth, distributed mental wealth of many people to partake in. 
So I have I start in a story which I for me feels like my worry is that deep psychological, collective psychological capacity and resilience. And I see it being played out in everyday behaviors. And this is the thing that I suppose I it's the everydayness of it. It's not the kind of in a way we can all point to the big macro things, the Trumps, the Brexit. But I'm actually also interested in in our own behaviors as individuals. When we lose the patience for a conversation where the stress of managing six, seven different things are simultaneous, people's job securities are disappearing, we're going to see large-scale job losses. We're only beginning of that story as we start to reconfigure. So the level of uncertainty that people are going to have to live with will be significant. And so there's that side of the story, which I think I'm sort of starting this year with, I suppose, with, which is starting to sense out that this is psychologically different to what the last two years were. And tapping into that collective psychology, I think, is a key issue. Because if we start to imagine and want to imagine a new future, I think we're going to have to build in the capacities and the capabilities for people to dream. And and there's another part of that, which is our ability to, to think long-term. So what's become more and more evident to me is that long-term is a privilege of the few. So few people can think long-term because they've got either the economic and social context to think long-term. Actually, many of us are slowly instrumentalized to being able to not only to not be able to think long-term, but actually to think in the short. And we know this in economic recessions. We spoke about this, I think, last time. In economic recessions, people buy psychological fixes, chocolate, movies. They buy psychological fixes to deal with the long, the ability to not to think into the long term, the ability, the, the lack of ability to think into the long term, and some of the challenges that throws up. So for me, I think that what I sense is those dimensionals, those dimensions are really critical right now for the conversation. How do we democratize the capacity for everyone to dream? How do we democratize the capacity for everyone to have hope? How do we rebuild hope in a world where increasingly, I think some of these challenges are becoming very visceral? I think that's one dimension. And then at the other dimension of it is that I think we've got a foundational problem in how we perceive ourselves. And and the nature of the crisis is compounding that. So the nature of the crisis is making us feel like, well, we're individuals, we're more individualistic. But actually what we're not able to build is a different discourse. So we're locked between the collective and the individual. Whereas actually I think there's a fundamentally different frame, which is about our interdependence, which is neither about the collective and nor is it about the individual. It's about interdependence, which is a different lens to look at our thesis. Yet all our political narratives and psychological narratives are formed around the idea of the individual. And the collective is also just an individual in a way. The collective is also just a classification structure, a mechanism to build a bounded notion of a group of people versus another group of people. Whereas interdependence is fundamentally, psychologically, a different thesis. So building, carrying on building on that, what I think is really challenging is that we're going to see large scale, I think, you know, we've seen in the European Union, large scale investments being announced for green deals and large commitments of capital. And we're seeing similar sorts of capital structures being announced around the world. But the really interesting and problematic challenge for me is how does that capital flow in a way that actually builds 
the structural resilience and the democratic capacity of societies? Or is it just going to be disaster capitalism, where the capital will flow and increase the wealth of the few, which is what we've seen in the last six to nine months, where we've seen the compounding of that wealth? Now, here we have to be really careful, I suppose, is that for me, this is not a question. Okay, this is a choice. And I'm going to have a discussion with you, me, and your My worry about having a conversation which is entirely focused on redistribution is that we make that we let go of the future. The future becomes a, a net zero, zero sum game. And all that's there is the cake that we have and who has that cake. But if the future is infinite, which I believe it is, and I infinite in a, as in the possibilities of human civilization, not our current growth models, not our current models of GDP, but the idea of civilization, us as a global civilization, planetary civilization, we want to grow is, is I believe, infinite and grow at an internal level, not just a material level, all those sorts of things. There's a really interesting question of how, what is the politics of change? Is our politics of change going to be about the redistribution of the now? which is about dividing our place in the earth, or is it about actually seeing our place in the stars? And this is a really interesting political conversation for me. And it's a political conversation which is buried into injustice, historic injustices, and who carries the load of those historic injustices. So there is a really challenging moment where the infiniteness of, of the infinite, the relative infiniteness of the future is appealing, but you can't deal with it without actually dealing with the historic injustices of the past. And that requires us to have a very fine, nuanced landscape of being able to bridge the historic injustices and the infinite futures. And we need politicians, and we need ourselves in our own lives to be able to reconcile both those positions, because we cannot have one without the other. If we have one without the other, we have what I would traditionally call is just the redistribution narrative. It doesn't work. It's not about redistribution, it's about restoration, and it's about infinite futures. I feel we're in the middle of a big-scale transformation, but I'm, what I'm most worried about right now is the psychological capacity of society and the democratizing that capacity to dream is really fundamental. Sorry, Phil, went on too long, probably. No, not at all. I wanted to, to give you an opportunity to frame how you were thinking and to lay out the language because... Obviously, I think it is very nuanced. It touches on so many ways in which these these systems, the way in which we've chosen to govern ourselves, and, and I mean govern in the most in the broadest context, you know, the way we've decided to set up society, it requires that type of space and discourse. And so often we don't allow that to exist. So I think what you've done is really opened up a portal, so to speak, that allow us to start to really go into how these issues are, you know, the word interconnected, right? How they all do spin around. And that capacity, that ability to dream, the capacity to dream, as you mentioned, not everyone has that at the same time, because it feels like often we're in survival mode. Right. And when you're wired in a way where you're trying to just make it, it's very hard for you to think beyond the survival. And when you were talking about this challenge of being triggered to think that way, it makes me think of the marshmallow test, which is very famous in psychological circles and, and proven 
to be less accurate than what it was reported to be at first, where a group of kids are given a marshmallow, an option for a marshmallow versus something else, a delayed treat. And this test was used to say that, you know, the kids who were able to delay taking or grabbing the marshmallows were the ones that were going to be successful in life versus those who went for the immediate satisfaction. And then later studies show that, you know, a lot of what, why that is, is because of economic situations and how kids determine scarcity versus other kids that might be more privileged. And I think we're kind of seeing ourselves all acting out that reality on a global scale and needing and having a capacity to imagine viable future. You know, what I want to do is is sort of ask you in, in the middle of that, really the psychological and the really deeply human trials that we are going through, are institutions as currently constructed capable of making that bridge that you talked about between the potential to restore and imagining something different, right? Because there is a justice on one side and the redistribution, as you've highlighted it, might not, most likely is not the answer. So are institutions capable of having the kind of, of bridging that you've described? Are they capable? I don't know. Do they need to? Yes. I don't see a way out of this without being able to make these transitions. I can't see a way. Redistribution, as you rightly point out, is the idea of taking from one to give to the other. Whereas restoration and justice is about actually recognizing the foundational injustice in that distribution, in, in that original distribution, and actually restoring that. Now, you can psychologically construct this in so many different ways. You can construct it on the basis of taking away, or you can construct it on the basis of actually building the social contract for society to thrive. You can construct that narrative on the basis of actually, if all of society thrives, everyone's cake theoretically gets bigger. So it is about the political narratives that we wrap around this stuff that actually so much of this hands, the narrative story. So that, for me, is really critical. And then those political narratives then construct our accounting mechanisms, our theses of value, our theses of, of construction, of what I find, you know, thesis of, of the kind of outcomes that we want to ascribe to. So, I mean, what I find, the word freedom is so strongly etched into our discourse. And I often sort of think about this because it's a word that I think we've lost. It's a word that's been captured at the level of the individual, i.e. my freedom to do something. But actually, surely the capacity of government and society, remember government is just a collective institution, is a mechanism to help build the freedoms of everyone. And there are types of freedoms. So if we construct freedom just for the few, it's always a freedom to escape. So if it's only the 1% that are going to be free, then it will have to be a freedom to escape the 99%. That is the thesis of freedom that we're living in right now. Whereas actually, if you construct a thesis of how do we create the freedom of society, we have to talk about a freedom to care. Because actually, when you give people the right and the privilege to be free, they can give their attention on the things that they care about. And care becomes foundational to creativity. Care becomes foundational, good, solid emotional relationships. Care becomes foundational to our relationship with the future. 
So it is these words that seem to construct our political narratives and thereby our allocations of how we want to distribute, pre-distribute, invest, uh, societally invest into these businesses. And for me, I think there's a kind of, the language becomes really critical here. And the language we allow people to get away with becomes really foundational. And so when people talk about freedom, I often say, what freedom? Which freedom are you looking for? Freedom for everyone or freedom for the few? And just by being articulate about that, it opens up a different type of conversation in that thesis. And I think we have to we have to be precise in the language. And I think that's right. I think our institutions, I think our institutions have to be reimagined. You know, I would love to talk about what does a new constitution look like in an age of interdependence? So rather than a declaration of independence, what about a declaration of interdependence? Let's imagine a declaration of interdependence for every country in the world, recognizing our global interdependence and recognizing our needs for that. What would that look like? Would this be the second age of America, the real second age of America, when actually America wrote a declaration of interdependence with the world? Because that's a fractal thesis, which then fractalizes all the way down, not only from an idea of a nation state, but at the level of all of us and our own civilities in the world. So I think this is a moment which requires, invites greatness. It invites great horrors, but it also has the invitation for greatness in here. I wanted to jump in on the care element because at the end of the year, I had a conversation with The Economist and it was one of the, you know, what you can imagine, a, you know, give us your thoughts for 2021. And it was myself and two other speakers, all of us with very different backgrounds. And I was the culture society guy. Right. That was my that was my role and responsibility in this conversation, which was actually very, very well done. And I was very happy to do it. And I highlighted care as what I said to them as we were kind of talking about what 2021 would look like was that we are in a crisis of care. And what I meant by that is, is that if you look at the way in which we have framed COVID and often the way in which we frame many of our metaphors for challenges we'll face, they're metaphors of the military. They're metaphors about fighting. We're going to defeat the virus and we're going to win the battle against global terrorism or whatever it is, right? It's always this military language, this idea of fighting. And when I think about the multiple crises, you know, the what you think of as what you said, I think long-term emergencies, right? They're all rooted in that idea of how we care about one another and the world around us. And I wanted to spend a little bit more time dissecting that idea because I agree with you that the language we use must be precise and it must be direct. And we should try to, at least I try to in my work, to really use human language, you know, to like make normalize talking about love and care and justice in everything that we do. These are not these are not the words of philosophers. These should be the words of our societal discourse. And I think about, there were two threads on Twitter about the travel of people going to Taiwan in one and a gentleman going to South Korea in another. And when I read their threads about, for example, they're moving from the airport to getting tested, not only was it precise in its technical know of how to move people through a pandemic, but it was also filled with in my words, such care. You know, there was 
a place to stay. There was food allocated. The food looked healthy. You know, there were all these different things. And I shared it with so many friends because I felt like the United States and by and large, the Western world seems wholly incapable of building something like that. You know, not to say that these other countries are perfect, but there seems no willingness or no ability to think in a transformational way about embedding care into all of our working systems. And I want you to kind of, do you feel the same way? Do you have a different thought about our our core ability or willingness to adapt this language and and really embed care and work on that declaration of interdependence? Like, is this something that can be done? I mean, I would start with the word must be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what you've just described there on care is just phenomenally brilliant because I would say the challenge that we face in the West is that we have focused on transactions and price and the thesis of conquest and war, as you rightly say, underwritten. And remember, management theory, as we know it, largely is, is a function of the war machine, right? So it comes from the thesis of war. So we have a transaction and a management theory that is a function of a war machine. And yet we're living in a world which is increasingly, so creativity, you can't buy creativity. People think you can transact creativity, you can't. What you can do is you have the relationship with which there's a financial relationship, but that doesn't really, there are two different relationships. One is a support, one is a transaction, but the creativity exists in a different landscape, the sharing of something. And care is the same thing. I mean, like actual physical care. So you can't transact for a carer at $5 a day or $5 an hour, actually, or $10 an hour, whatever the kind of unit price is. Actually, the care is much more valuable and is intrinsic. So creativity, care, these economies, these hyperhuman economies are a function of the intrinsic capacity, building the intrinsic capacity of citizens to be able to care to be able to craft that person that makes a craft coffee, that brilliant craft coffee that you might have, and then smiles and looks you straight in the eye and says, hey, Phil, here's a lovely coffee for you. That moment, that requires something more than the price of coffee. It's not a transactional gift. It's a human relationship. And you're right that we've reduced our in, in our Western systems, our CFOs, our financial models, predicate so much power and control on the financial incentives of the system, they forget about the human dimensions that actually make those things work. So actually, when you instrumentalize all of these things, giving a carer a 5% bonus because actually they got a, they were more efficient on doing something or they got 10 more carers actually gets regressive results. It produces bad results. So I think you're right to say there's a fundamental economic question here about how do we create the economy of care, rebuild an economy of care that is beyond the economy of transactions. And that's about building the capacity for everyone to care. And that's also about not instrumentalizing people so that actually they have no sense of control, freedom, and agency. That is about creating the freedom for actually, whether it's a nurse to actually be able to make the right decision, not the decision that's predicated, you know, what is the cheapest financial transaction that they can make on behalf of the hospital. So we have to create distributed power agency 
accountability. It's a new theory, which isn't based on control, which is about actually recognizing the power and agency of everyone. And that is a fundamentally different model to where we are right now. Our current model is based on financial incentives, high level of centralized control, high level of instrumentalization. Whereas what we have to move towards is an economy which is not based on instrumentalization, but about intrinsic models of care, intrinsic models of craft. And that's about creating new conditions. So our institutions are currently designed for a control economy, not a care economy. And so let's use a kind of a very simple thing like a universal basic income. The idea of a universal basic income is not just about welfare. It's actually about creating the conditions for high-value creativity, craft, complex cognition, and care in society. It's an instrument for unlocking a new high-value human development economy. And for me, so what you're saying is absolutely spot on. And I would say the reason why some of these things in other economies and societies feel different is because actually some of those instruments of care haven't yet, either the development curve has been relatively recent, so those kind of historic societal structures of care are still there, the behaviors are still present, and all price reduction of everything to price value isn't there. So we're still talking about value as opposed to price, pricing transaction costs. So there is a fundamental question, and I think this is really important because I think we still treat humans as machines. So we think of a human as a robot to be instrumentalized, to be incentivized, to be structured financially with with finance being the mechanism of controlling the robot. And I think that society worked for theoretically an industrial idea of the world where we are producing widgets, gadgets, and things. When we want to produce higher value human human functions, cognitive care, craft, we need a completely different thesis of how we create the conditions for the uh, for the intrinsic eruption of care, the intrinsic capability to care, the intrinsic capability to be present, the intrinsic capability for everyone to have high quality attention to each other. That's a completely different thesis, and I think that's the big leap that we're we're going to have to make. And I think the challenge is it really requires it's taking everyday language like care, but understanding it is not just language but actually a foundational economic thesis of our society. So I think, you know, the book that needs to be written is The New Economies of Care in the, for the 21st century and why they're foundational to the new societies and the value question that's going to occur. And this is not a soft thing. It's actually about understanding a different model. So I would totally agree with you. I want to, you said something at the very beginning that was really interesting. And it is tying into a point you just made about human beings as machines and how we we still have that model, this idea that we can, A, make us more efficient. So efficiency is always the language that you hear. And we can be incentivized by certain tools, financial tools, financial nudges to kind of go in one direction versus another. And it made me think, Uh, At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned also this idea of escape and that the freedom that some people have is a freedom to escape. So the 1% as presently constructed is thinking about how to insulate themselves, protect themselves, go to Mars or go to New Zealand in the near term or whatever the situation might be. 
in order to have the freedom to escape. So the higher you go up the hierarchy of money, the more your ability is to insulate, i.e. escape from whatever might be happening in the world that is unpleasant and tragic and a breakdown. And so I want to tie that idea of escape to this notion you mentioned about automation and labor. Like it just clicked as you were talking that we've seen in this crisis more talk about essential, who's essential in terms of their work, but yet the organizing principles behind essential work is consistently under attack. Those who deliver our packages, those who really keep this infrastructure running, we're looking to replace them, right? Like there's this notion that we can automate as much of these processes as possible, whether it's driverless cars or drone delivery, like everything that's been talked about is about moving human beings out of the equation in order to have this search for efficiency. So I'm kind of thinking of piecing this together, but your thought really triggered, like, are we trying to, do you get the sense that in some of this notion of escape, that interconnectedness of labor against like human labor against, I don't want to fall into against because it seems adversarial, but in answer to the escape notion of automation, is that something that we need to be thinking about how we organize ourselves around our labor? I think it's, I would say yes. And I think there's two components to that. So the thesis of what are we escaping is I think we're escaping the instrumentalization of our, by other people. So it is the escape from being a machine or being thought through as a machine, the escape of, de, of our dehumanization. And, you know, it's an escape from a kind of a, a network prison that we live in in a way, a network prison of incentives, of rents, and mechanisms that keep us operating in the way. And that is the escape. And the escape is constructed from that thesis, in my view, because we've created that thesis. If, we, you know, if we've turned the world into a jail, then the only thesis is the escape. And that's what I think you know, one of the ambitions of systems have, have been generated, is an escape from that, from that system. And the other way is, obviously, the recoding of that that system of incentives to a new world, which then creates a different thesis of freedom. So I think that's right. Now, I think the other part of that story is that I don't think the problem is, I think automation is not the problem. I think automation is great. Let's do it. Do as much of it as we can. Not a problem. I think the problem is that we're not creating the human development uh, spaces to then actually support the development of human capital into this new care economy. We're not creating the conditions. So we we're on one hands, in one hand, we're sort of saying we're going to treat, we're going to treat the system, we're trying, we're going to treat all of us like like machines. And then we're going to replace you with real machines and making you redundant. And the thesis is redundant. So we're talking about the redundancy of humans from the system. And which is, I think, the kind of weird conversation here. Because the reality is that I think automation gives us the mechanisms to liberate humans from the thesis of humans as units of labor and mechanism and the machine economy. We are false robots. We are bad robots in the machine economy. And I think what we can do is we can genuinely liberate humans. But if we are going to talk about not, if we're going to talk about it through the thesis of liberation, we have to then create the institutions and the infrastructure for liberation, not the discardation 
of humans uh, in that process. And I think that's a political conversation. It's a conversation of what we see possible. We're currently limited because we only perceive the possibility. We've stopped perceiving the infinite possibility of humans. We perceive the possibility of us through the lens of the utility of us in our current roles. So what's our utility in our current reality? as opposed to the infinite possibility of society. And this is a really important part of the conversation because, for me, this really throws up this idea of evidence-based society versus belief-based society. And by belief, I do not mean religion or anything. I mean the idea of something which is beyond our current knowledge. So evidence-based saying, well, I'm sorry, there's no evidence for this abundant society. Okay, so does that mean we never did do this? And if we talk about evidence-based society, we'd never moved on. Belief and the architecture of the of the possible, the architecture of going to the moon, right? The architecture of going to Mars, the architecture of belief is more critical than the architecture of evidence. And we've destroyed our institutional infrastructures for belief to believe things are possible. And then you rationally construct from that belief, that possible, the mission, back into scaffolding that into reality. But I think without the belief, how do we create those things, I think becomes a really interesting question. So for me, there's a whole layered conversation, as you rightly point out, between what is it that we're escaping and how we created the conditions of escape, which is instrumentalization. What does that mean for actually, are we talking about the redundancy of humans or the liberation of humans? And that's what's the investment look like. And then the thesis of belief, you can only create the thesis of liberation through an idea not of evidence, but the idea of belief, of society, of the possible. And the construction of that becomes really critical. And I think we've lost the art of being able to say the belief, the intentionality to being able to say what would that look like? And I think that's a really problem, and that's made us short-termist, that's made us reactive, that's made us, I think, locked into the perpetual present. And I think there's something really important here about belief has been turned into this kind of conversation of religion and all that sort of stuff, rather than the belief in our possibility, belief in our, our own future, which has become actually vacillated in, in, in the recent now. It's funny when you talk about this notion of belief, this architecture of belief. One of the things that I cite when folks, myself included, are like, oh, my God, this just feels so hopeless. You know, like I think we started off this conversation with highlighting some very real challenges, you know, some real crises that exist on many different levels. And I what I'm always wary of is when I'm in a conversation and it could be about anything and folks say, well, are you optimistic? Like they'll kind of ask this sort of open-ended question around optimism. And I'm always hesitant to answer it because it feels like after we've gone through this, this long dissertation, at the end of the day, people are looking for the optimism question is about being reassured that everything is going to be okay. At least that's how I take it. Right. And I wonder how do we combat the cynicism that is, is part of this, what I view as this, it stands in contrast to building an architecture of belief in the sense that there's all these invisible things that are happening around us. Some of us see infinite possibilities in that. Others, I think, see that the system 
these invisible things that are happening entrench the powerful and emphasize that they are powerless. So they stop trying to change. You hear a lot of, oh, it's just the way it is, or this will never work. And, oh, it doesn't matter if Donald Trump is a criminal because they're all criminals, right? You start to get this notion that people buy into the dark matter that's happening is by nature nefarious. So there's nothing we can do about it as compared to the dark matter exists in this infinite, which should actually be a very powerful notion. So I wonder how we, how do we start to tell that, that story that's different from leaning into the cynicism? Yeah, it's such a good series of questions in there and thoughts. I mean, uh, and it's multi-layered, right? So I think some of the cynicism is a protection mechanism, right? Is a protection mechanism of people that have been hurt, that are vulnerable, that are psychologically fragile. That so cynicism is a device. Right? It's a sort of a auto. It's an autoimmune device to help to preserve. Some of the cynicism is a mechanism of power. It's a device to control. It's a device to destroy. Belief is a fragile thing, so it's very easy to destroy, and it's a mechanism to entrench the now. Some of that story is also about the institutional lock-ins that we face to be able to construct this stuff. So I'm not in any way, I don't think it's a singular issue. I re- genuinely recognize that I think there are multiple pathways. And that's why, in a way, there's new politics being constructed between a politics of cynicism, which is constructed on those that are fragile, vulnerable, and, and actually just trying to preserve their own realities, and those that are using the same things to preserve the lock-ins. So we are creating a new politics that I think is of those political architecture, political framework, which is manifesting into our world. I think that's important. I also think that's just the reductionism of our scientific thinking. And I think it's very reductionist. Science doesn't tell you truths. Science at best tells you the best possible understanding of the now. And it will be iterated and evolved. So there's kind of a truthism thesis that is being slowly adopted into the scientific discourse, evidence, the idea of the hypothesis, the idea of the the thesis that describes the world. I think we've created mechanisms that have reduced science into its weakest, most fragile things, the evidence of that decision. Evidence is not science. Uh, Evidence is just a data point. And I think so there's a kind of how do we build, and I love your words here about the belief architecture, the architecture for societies to believe, to believe in the infinite potential of our human capacities, the idea of what we can achieve as a nation, as a series of nations around the world. And I think the destruction of belief, if you want to control a nation, you destroy its capacity to believe. If we want to talk about the warfare of the 21st century, it will be this kind of quasi-cognitive warfare at a civilization level that you destroy our capacity to believe and you destroy the ability for collective capacities of belief. That's really an individual belief and collective beliefs are really different. How do we build that architecture for scientists to believe again? I think that's a really powerful thing. And in a way, you know, when when Obama, President Obama came in with the kind of whole thesis of hope, it was such a really powerful narrative, but we didn't construct the architecture behind that. And we didn't construct the theory of actually how do we create societies, the democratic capacities of hope and democratic capacities of belief. So I think this is a really ingrained issue, but I think it's fundamental. It's almost like there's almost a so, socio 
psychological geography of hope, of belief that we need to construct again. And unless we're able to do that, I think, you know, as I started this conversation right at the beginning, my biggest worry is the destruction of that, that intentionality, that possibility of the future. And without it, I don't think we can recover. I think that's the number one task for a new a new presidency, in my view, is the construction of the architecture of belief. And that cannot just be in the vision and the words of the president and the vice president. It needs to be in the construction of the architecture for everyone to believe again. And that renewal is systematic. And that renewal needs to then be linked very strategically back into the thesis of moving from the machine economy to the care economy. And recognizing there's a transcendence moment, automation gives us the capacity for humans to be liberated from the machine economy to a new thesis. And that requires a new human development thesis across the US, in my view, and other places around the world. So this is a, a flow of a conversation that, that I think we need to have and we need to acknowledge into that process, which is why I love this conversation, because I think part of it is just recognizing it between ourselves. The rest is actually then doing so. Yeah, we have to give voice to these things. And I think we also need to have a space for like a reasoned critique and a challenge. And, you know, obviously, you know, I started off talking about we had our, you know, the 2020 election, you know, Trump is out. And as much as I'm grateful for that, I'm happy for that. Every Anybody who knows my politics know that that was a longtime goal and dream of mine to never have to think about a person like Donald Trump again. What concerns me, though, is that what we've done and the language that was used in that election was a language to get us back to, quote unquote, normal. There was this institutional belief that this one individual was the problem. Once we remove him because he has broken our democratic norms, quote unquote, we'll be better. You know, like this is a chance to get us back on track. And I reject that language because, you know, the track was a terrible track before Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, and you can insert the same language, I think, in the UK, a place I feel very close to because I have family there and I spent a lot of time there that. These tracks aren't the tracks we want to be on. So a notion of getting back on track, quote unquote, is it demonstratively better than fascism? Yes. Does it solve our problems in these long-term emergencies that we've described? I'm not as confident about that, right? Which is the work, right? Like how do you and I and others, A, start to become interdependent in a way we work and communicate and think about our language and think about how we are building institutions in, in a stark relief against these notions of tradition, you know, because notions of tradition to me at this moment feel very complacent. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, so I think we have to recognize that Trump is a symptom and that it's really, as is climate change, is a symptom. These aren't the failures, they're the, the manifestations of the failures. And the failures are much deeper in the system. And my worry is that actually, we might have bought ourselves four years. And those four years, 
We may do something, we may not do something. Let's say we even do some good. But actually, unless we address the deep systemic issues on the table, what will return in four years will be far worse than what we have now. That's what my deep worry is, that I think Trump is not the problem. The problem is much deeper. And we have to start by acknowledging that reality. And then we have to start to talk about, actually, what are the structural transformations required? And I don't see yet in the political economy the desire to address those structural issues, which are much deeper. And my biggest worry is, and this is what I think progressives around the world or agents of change around the world, that is what we need to be doing is is forewarning that unless we use these four years to deal with the structural issues, what will arise in the next four, five years will be far worse, far worse. And I think we're at the beginning of that story. And that is my deepest concern right now, is that you're right, people are looking for a return to the status quo. And the reality is there is no status quo. The normal that was, was a false reality. It was not even false, it was massively destructive. And actually what we're moving into is going to is not even going to make that, that normal is no longer returnable back to. And I think we have to start to talk about the deep change that's necessary as a result of that. So I, I can't agree with you more on this issue, that I think most people are seeing Trump is just a symptom. Trump is a manifestation of structural issues. And, you know, we have to, there is a degree of acceptance that actually our political architectures have become corrupt. Right. The language used is not the, the corruption of the system, systemic corruption is there. Right. And unless we are able to voice truth to that, I don't think how we change it. Climate change is happening. It's going to kill millions and billions of people. The fact that this is happening is a pure proof, if you want, of the systemic governance failures that we've got. So this is my worry is that the zeitgeist to which what was being manifested is there, but I don't see it acknowledged on the other side right now, because actually it's so much about preservation. The best way I heard it described was, at best, it's really great palliative care the next four years. And that is something we really need to avoid. Because if this turns into palliative care for the next four years, and it's nice and comfortable, we are in a demagogue situation on the other side of this. And there's a real issue there. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I remarked to some folks toward the end of the year that as much as those of us, like you said, that are progressives, and I'm, I'm using all these terms broadly because many people listening to the show fall and they will call these things, they will mean different things in different places in the world and people refer to themselves in different ways. So these are just monikers so we can start to use the same language, you know, progressives, or as you said, agents of change. There's folks on the other side of these conversations who are just as aligned to not only the status quo, but worse than the status quo, right? Like they are just as focused, just as united in their capacity to extract and exploit these systems as long as they can live within them at a high enough level relative to to the rest of us. And one of our challenges or calls in this new year and more is to, you know, not in my mind, we can't take our foot off the gas because Brexit is final or Joe Biden is president or whatever the situation happens to be. We need to be 
more diligent, more organized, more focused, that wholesale reimagining in order to get to some viable futures in the plural that works for all of us. And as you said, so eloquently is interdependent and framed in care and justice and love is the capstone of our work. It has to be, or these years ahead are bleak, <laughs> you know, like that's my editorial. And there's no question in that, you know, like, I feel like I never have a fully formed question with you because we're just talking, but it's, um, no, I think that, I think that's spot on. And I, the other thing I would say is that I don't want to use this language of other sides, but I'm going to use it just to make a bridge. Mm -hmm. I don't think the other side, so let's say, for example, Peter Thiel, his objectives, as far as I've read them and listened to them, are actually quite similar. He would want the advancement of civilization. His theory of change, of how to get it, is through a thesis of competition and hyper-competition. So he has a theory of change. In order for civilization to advance and progress to happen, competition is one of the fundamental mechanisms of doing it. And even monopolies are not a bad thing because they concentrate abundance in his theory of change. And he also talks about the great stagnation of science in society and talks about, so I wonder how do we create these new bridges? So like, is he right about competition? I don't think so. But it would be important for a new dialogue space to occur between those that appear to be on the other side to talk about, is it competition? Does competition work in a, so Daniel, Daniel Schuttenberger talks a lot about we are in a planetary crisis and we're in a self-terminating situation. So in a massively interdependent world, is competition a viable organizing principle or does competition only work in a thesis of individualism and independence. So are we in a new economic paradigm? I would love to have this conversation because I'm not sure that he is blinded to the thesis of whether competition is the only thing or polymathic thinking. There's a deficit of polymathic thinking. Yes, I'd agree with him. Massive deficit of polymathic thinking. Our institutions are designed for single silo-based thinking models. You can be a great chemist. You can be a great physicist. You can be a great biologist. But whoa. Woe to die if you want to be a poet and a chemist and a, and a mathematician at the same time. So I wonder how do we bring, build the intellectual bridges between different parts of different points of this view? Because I would like to believe, and maybe I'm wrong, I would like to believe the intentionality is similar, but the tools and the mechanisms and the theories are divergent. But I would offer to the fact that I don't know whether my theories are the right theories yet. They are theories to be tested and developed. And how do we create these new bridges? I really would like that because I think it's a really important issue. Because I learn as much from both sides. The last time I recommended the zero to one, I did it in our call. And I just suppose, how do we create new bridges? Feels really critical. Because I don't think, I don't believe 19, I believe 99% of people are really genuinely well-minded. And if you can create the conditions for them to be well-minded, they're, they're not psychopaths, they're not sociopaths, they actually just want to be good people. And I wonder, wonder how many of us are trapped into our own, uh, into both what I'd call social media reinforcement bubbles, which means that you get this kind of narrow characterization of people into single frames, 
without understanding the richness of what they're talking about and actually being separated out. So we never discuss the stuff with each other. We never create the frameworks for those conversations, which actually allow us to be able to imagine new alternatives that being some of his thinking, some of our thinking to create a new fusion. I know this is almost heretical to be able to say this, but I think it's just really critical that we build these bridges as well. You know, I think bridges are important as well. One of the things I want to think about, because this has come up quite often, not just in our conversations, but in in other both on-air conversations that I've had and off-air conversations as I move through life. Like, how do we, do we have the capacity to listen? Do we have the capacity to absorb? You know, I think about the work of folks who are doing like abolition work, thinking about our criminal justice. You know, one of the most, I think, polarizing things that we have on the table to think about. And they use a deep language of love and restorative love. And I try to move in the world with that, but I am challenged by, I think some of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, that when we talked about, when you started talking, there was a lot of this like psychological, the battling or wrestling with these notions of some of our biggest challenges are going to be psychological in the years to come. And I think what challenges, at least what challenges maybe myself and others around bridges, and I don't want to get to this and then we'll get to the final segment of the show, which is going to be the drop. I'm skipping the five quick questions, you know, because I want us to spend some time on this last piece is really one of the things I would like to see some thought about is the trauma that we all have. I think the notion of trauma sometimes is a very personal, right? So it kind of gets us to this piece about us as individuals and how we deal with pain. But then I do think they are maybe collective traumas. So now we've kind of broadened it out to a group, but it's still not interdependent trauma. And I feel sometimes our sticking points are based in really hurt. You know, this not having the capacity and language to talk about the things that happened in the past. Another point that you mentioned at the beginning, like we have to confront some of those things and put the trauma on the table, I think, before we can make the bridge. It's an imperfect thesis in my mind because I haven't worked it all out, but I feel like it's hard for me to think about the bridge if some very basic things aren't even being acknowledged. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think this is the, at a societal level, this is why the restoration and the trauma adjustment is fundamental. Any leader that believes that we can move forward without doing that, I think is lying, fundamentally lying. I don't think, I think the construction of the social contract and the reconstruction of the social contract, which acknowledges the historic injustices, which actually builds, remember the layers of it, right? Whether it's your instrumentalization as a labor, race, all sorts of, these traumas exist. They are manifest. They are fracturing and destabilizing our capacity to be in the future, to exist in the future, to create social trust, to actually have relationships. These are fundamental breakdown, foundational, uh, they are foundational fractures in us as a society. And it's going to be the key work is the rebuilding of that. I think the rebuilding of nations, that's Brexit, I think exactly this problem right now. And I think that's exactly this problem, same problem in the US. 
we are going to have to reconstruct those things. And that is, collective trauma is a thing. And actually being able to construct that, whether COVID is going to introduce a whole cycle of this story. So I think building that, building the pathway is going to be fundamental. And only then, you're right to say, how do we create the bridges that are at the center of this? And the thought, the point I was trying to make was that perhaps I sometimes wonder whether the differences that we see are as big as the differences that they are. And actually, how much, if we can do the work, the foundational work, as you rightly say, how much closer we are to being able to innovate and work together in really fundamental ways. But I think those are really, really important issues. And I think this is what great leadership will look like. Great leadership will be looking like, how do we reconstruct that? This is effectively a war without a war. This is a world war without a world war. It is equivalent of that, where we're seeing where you have to recast nations. It's absolutely critical. Absolutely. And I couldn't put it better. I won't try. You know, we can do this for hours, but I want to get us to the final segment of the show, which is called The Drop. And The Drop is quite simply just a recommendation, a thought, a moment to share something with our listeners that you think is worth for them to check out. Drops don't have to be one thing. I have one drop. I'm sure you have something to bring. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll let you have the last word. I would say, all right, if 1919, 1918, 1920 was the Spanish flu and World War had ended, uh, we were at the end of the World War and it gave birth to a roaring 20s. At the same time, that roaring 20s was kind of giving birth to a whole new music scene that was merging. Charleston, the whole, there was a whole intimate, hybrid, interactive music scene, jazz, all this, the kind of initial frameworks of jazz and other things was being born at that moment time, really, I would say. What does that look like for our age? What is the kind of beat of our age? And what's it going to look like? I think I'm on the lookout for that. That's my drop, is be on the lookout for that. Because I think that is going to be the signals of a, as we re want to experience our humanity our collective humanity, that vibrance, that intimacy, that interaction, human interaction, musical interaction. When you start to hear that beat, you know something's starting to happen. Look out for the beat. Looking out for the beat is a great drop. I have a recommendation for my first drop of 2021, which is a show that I recently just binged. It's on Amazon here in the States, but I had to use another service inside Amazon called Topic, which has like a bunch of shows primarily international shows, like kind of what they would brand themselves as the best of the international market. So I was quite intrigued by that. But the show is called Made in Italy. And it's a it's going to have a second season, but the first season is about the fashion scene in the 70s in Italy, mostly Milan. But there's a lot more going on than just that. That part of the show is done very well, but it really talks about the creative world that was going on at that time, the social world, the kind of social unrest that was happening in Italy, centered in Milan against progressives and left radicals versus kind of nation fascism and the Red Brigade. So there's a lot of stuff happening within the show, but I thought it was really contextually well done, it's entertaining, and it will send you I think if you're curious into having conversations about some of the bigger themes that were going on at the time. So what might seem like sort of a young woman exploring herself in the early parts of her career, 
in the fashion industry, I think has some more interesting subtext to it than it sounds at first. And I really enjoyed the show. So my first drop for the year is to check out Made in Italy, wherever it might be streaming, wherever you're listening. (laughs) Right. That's a quick watch, even tonight, my friend. Yeah, it's a good show. I definitely think it's to be enjoyed. I want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. You know, this is, we're in the year 2021 and we actually met each other in 2011. And so it's 10 years now that we've known each other. And it seems longer than that in the best possible way, because you're someone that I consistently look to, to get inspiration from and to learn from. And I'm really glad that we've been able to have a connection and a friendship that's lasted this decade. And I look forward to the next decade. So I want to thank you really for being on the show with me. Well, likewise, Phil. And I have to say, this podcast for me is a conversation. And it's a function of actually our relationship and the breadth of knowledge and wisdom that you bring to it that allows for this conversation to happen. So for me, I think this is such a beautiful conversation, such an important conversation. And I thank you for creating the framework and the invitation to be able to have this conversation with you and to be able to explore this stuff. Things I would not have been able to explore alone. So like all good conversations, it's a function of our interdependence. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, brother. It's going to be an exciting year. And I'm glad that we're in this building together. So I really appreciate you. And thanks again. Take care, my friend. It's been a pleasure having Indy Johar join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarflungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.